This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Before we begin today, I'd like to let you know that our guest, Diana Walsh Basilka, will be with us in the subscriber video room on December the 9th at 10 a.m. Pacific. That's December the 9th at 10 a.m. Pacific, a not-to-be-missed chance to ask questions of this remarkable scholar of the UFO phenomenon. Today, we have a remarkable guest with us. Many of you know her by name, Diana Walsh Basilka, the uh, author of American Cosmic, one of the, has become one of the seminal books in the whole journey of UFO work toward a higher level uh, and a remarkable book that revolutionized much of the way we think about this. She has a new book out called Encounters, Experiences with Non-Human Intelligences, and it is equally groundbreaking and important. And I'm very glad to have Diana with us today on Dreamland. This is, I think, your second or third appearance, and you know, Diana and I are close friends. I want to make that clear. And uh, the book is ex just remarkable. Uh, Diana, let me give you a little bit of her background. She's a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. She's written American Cosmic and another wonderful book called Heaven Can Wait, the most delightful and fascinating book about the Catholic concept of purgatory ever written. Um, I've read it twice, in fact, just for the sheer pleasure of doing so. And indeed, American Cosmic has become very much a part of my life. Uh, she is researches primarily Catholic history and uh, all the way from earliest times to modern day reports of UAPs and uh, the intimate connection between what we see and this worldview with something that we'll be discuss extensive, discussing extensively here. Let me tell you, this is something, here's something Jacques Vallée said about uh, encounters, which I think is the is a very uh, trenchant comment. Diana brings to the incomplete study of unidentified phenomena the missing parts that make it tick, a subtle, caring way to transcend the rough political and military turmoil that has long disfigured the research, and a formal framework for a spiritual reinterpretation of what the witnesses say. Her book is a staircase to the next level. And I congratulate you, Diana, on this because it is quite true. Now let's talk about the disfigurement of the research first. Uh, and we'll, we'll go back into what essentially happened and still happens with the difficulties that the Defense Department has in determining what we're dealing with. Is this something that flows accurately and truthfully out of our own mythology and is divided into clear good and evil? Or is it something else? How do you respond to that? 
Okay, well, thank you, Whitley, first for having me on your show. I love your show my and, pleasure. Um, Great. and all, all of your work. And thank you so much um, for being my friend through this amazing journey that I never believed I would be on. Um, thank <laughs> you. So, <laughs> um, and you do need good friends on this journey. Uh, there is no doubt about it. Oh, yes, I know that too from personal yeah. experience. Yeah. So that's a really good question you ask about the disfigurement of the research. And I would say that people, first, people in my field um, do religious studies. I know you've had Jeff Kripal on as a guest before, and you're oh, yeah. well aware of what we do. But I'd like to remind your listeners that in the, the discipline of religious studies, we look at religious traditions through academic frameworks and we don't bring belief into it generally right um i i will say though that that the study of this topic has completely changed my beliefs so whereas my beliefs didn't impact my methods for studying either religion or ufos which you know i, I consider them very similar if not the same thing um certainly the study of ufos completely impacted my religion okay so um so that has happened um, but with respect to the disfigurement of the research that Jacques refers to, I think that a lot of times people in my field, um, I would say, especially uh, someone who did the research that I did, say, you mentioned my book on purgatory. Well, a lot of that was excavational research. Basically, I had to do excavation because of what happens in the field of religion, which is called redaction. And your your listeners and viewers would know what redaction is because they're used to that term within the field of ufology. Um, redaction is when an institution takes information and either deletes it or changes it. Um, what Jacques would say disfigures it. Um, within the field of um, Catholic studies, we do get this with respect to the doctrine of purgatory. So when I did this research for purgatory, which preceded my entrance into studying UFOs, what I had to do basically was I had to go back and figure out from 1200 on up what, you know, what European Catholics were doing. And a lot of time this brought me to Ireland. Um, and when I got to Ireland, what I recognized was that a lot of the sources that had been ever written about purgatory were completely um, gone. They were completely, um, and this was the effect of English colonization on Irish culture. So the English colonized Irish culture, and what happened was that that they erased a lot of Irish history. Um, so I had to use the methods of my field in order to re you know, to kind of get back that history. So how do you get back history that's either erased or classified, right? How do you get back that that history? Um, my, I don't have any interest in, in doing this with classified information today, no, right? We're both but, very familiar with the dangers <laughs> of fooling around with classified information. Let's not even go there. That's right. But in the field of ufology from the 1940s up through the 1960s, you know, a lot of things have been declassified and a lot of the uh, historians that that are associated with the space program completely understand that the the history of our space program actually it can't be transparent at the moment because a lot of the programs are still classified. So I brought a lot of the research skills that I had to reconstruct 
Irish ideas of the afterlife and purgatory and basically Irish history um, from, you know, colonial erasure, basically the erasing of this history. And a lot of it had to do with very simple things. Um, being around people, Irish people, uh, because those stories get passed down. Uh, my own father comes from an Irish tradition. I listened to my grandparents as a child, and I remembered a lot of things, um, and also songs. Songs get passed down. Folklore. Folklore is another great you know, resource, which Jacques Vallée figured out too when he wrote Passport to Magonia. You know, he did an excavation of what he calls the phenomena through looking at the folklore of different traditions. So these are the methods that I was able to bring to um, basically, you know, kind of put together this history of what I was learning about. Well, and you extend that in encounters even more than in American Cosmic, I think, because American Cosmic is basically a uh, an appalled journey into a world you didn't previously know existed. <laughs> yes. I remember when you sent me the manuscript, I thought to myself, she's going to get in a lot of trouble for this. <laughs> I think an appalled journey is a really good way to put it. That's the best description yet. I was fairly appalled. <laughs> right. And here is this enormous thing kind of hiding in plain sight and then but when you look at it it looked like it was in plain sight but now it turns out it's a mirage and you look a little closer and it goes a little <laughs> farther away and then all of a sudden someone taps you on the shoulder and you look turn around and it's not a human being that that's sort of what it's like to be dealing with with this thing but i want to i i think i you know i i don't often talk about my own experiences on the show because this is about your work but one happened a, a week and a half ago that i think has to do with this program with this interview and i'm not going to ask you to deconstruct it in any way i'm just going to kind of leave it here and then we're going to go on into this journey into the realms of good and evil and beyond into the realms of the relationship with the alien. Uh, this was, I think, an out-of-body experience. It was very physical, though. But I can't believe I was where I was physically. Uh, I found myself face-to-face -face with a woman in a terrible situation. And uh, she was obviously in hell. There's no other way to describe it. There was not, no fire. It was much worse than that. And I'm not going to go into what it, it, the appearance of it, except I can assure you that if this exists, you definitely need to take steps in this life, all of us, I'm talking to all of us, to not go there. <laughs> so be careful. Um, so it, she was looking at me and with a desperate expression on her face and it was very vivid it was like being physically there more vivid than a lucid dream could ever be and uh the desperation was a a a fear of that she would be i would be revolted by her and she she obviously did not want that so i said the only thing i could think of in the face of this agony that i could see in her I said, I love you. 
and I tried to feel it in myself. And then I realized, I thought, oh my God, she's going to want me to hug her. And she opened her arms and I could see her fingernails were filthy and caked. I was just awful, an awful experience. But I went into her arms and I held her to me. And it ended. It's a descent into a place that you discuss very extensively, but very subtly in encounters. And I want to now go, we're going to return to the brilliant genius, Aya Whittley, whom we both know and love yes. in a little while, because she starts the book. But I want to go to the gray man now and his experience with St. Michael and mm -hmm. uh, the dark force that, that appeared there. We're talking to Diana Pasulka, Dr. Diana Walsh Pasulka. I think of her, of course, as Diana, and uh, about her book, Encounters, Experiences with Non-Human Intelligences. And is there any place on the internet that people can engage with you, Diana? A website or? Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I have three places where I am on the internet, and I must warn the viewers that there are some sites that are not mine, but are pretending to be me, and they'll try to sell you Bitcoin. <laughs> so, um, so I have dwpasolka.com. That's my website. And I also have an Instagram account at dwpasolka and a Twitter account at dwpasolka. Okay. Now, give us an idea of who the gray man is and why you can't say his name. Right. So when I um, use pseudonyms, uh, pseudonyms, excuse me, uh, it's because the people who I feature in the book, say it, it was American Cosmic or uh, this book, um, requested this. And they request this because they generally have a job where they need to be uh functionally anonymous um all right so that said he he has this pseudonym of gray man because his per, it actually fits his personality um he doesn't actually enjoy any type of attention <laughs> and what's interesting about gray man is that and why i chose to feature him is because each person that i feature in the book the book is a deep dive into real sightings that people have. So I talk a little bit about the actual sightings that we have evidence for, say, on objective instruments like radar or something. But then what I do is I interview witnesses about those. So I interview, you know, because it's not just when a UFO event happens, it's not just this thing on radar that we have. We also have the testimonies of the people who were involved in the experiences. And so I, I do a deep dive into the experiences that these people have. And Gray Man's experience is um, exemplifies so many other people that I thought that his would be best to use. It also, by the way, you met Dr. Carrie Mullis, I believe. Oh, I knew Carrie, yes. Yeah, Carrie, yeah, I'm okay. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Carrie, yeah. So in um, fact, I believe we were the conference you mentioned in the book. That you were where you met Carrie, I was there too. That's right. I remember that. 
Okay, yeah. so so Dr. Kerry Mullis, as you know, is a Nobelist. He's a Nobel Prize in chemistry, has a Nobel Prize, and he's an amazing scientist. Um, Grayman is also a scientist, and Grayman re reminded me a lot, especially of the experiences and the way he described the experiences and his own response to them that Kerry uh, Mullis described when we were at this conference. And so so well, not only before we go on, we need mm -hmm. to tell uh, the our listeners what Carrie Mullis described. I can do it, or you can do it. it, it so, <laughs> okay, I'll I'll tell I'll tell what okay. you said. It's so fun. Yeah. Carrie has a place or had a place in Northern California. He's not with us anymore, uh, and uh, he was walking out on a trail one evening. And he encountered a raccoon with glowing green eyes who looked up at him and said, good evening, Dr. Mullis. And of course, we all knew immediately when he, he described this and also the fact that another member of his family went missing for a significant period of time that evening uh, and into the next day, in fact that he had had an encounter with our little friends, the Greys. So that's the, his story. But now let's go on. And he, and he had a pretty negative response to it also. So he was afraid. And Carrie Mullis does not seem like a person who could scare easily. And he took a weapon that he had on his uh, property and he went to where he had seen this, what he described as an electric raccoon, and he just, he pummeled it, right, with, with, the, with the weapon. He just shot as many bullets as he could right. um, to, you know, to get rid of whatever it was. Well, uh, this is somewhat the response that Gray Man has to experiences that are very similar. Um, is In addition, though, Gray Man also has experiences of what he called, he decided was an angel that um that had a sword now what's interesting is that he is not he didn't grow up catholic he didn't grow up he actually grew up fairly secular uh without the iconography of the catholic church so he didn't actually know who saint michael the archangel was even though when he described this to me he described it as he said it wasn't a dream that he had a vision and in the vision he was engaged in what appears to be fighting demons <laughs> and you know he's a scientist and he just was telling me this this is as we were becoming um colleagues and i said that does sound like saint michael the archangel and i actually thought that he was aware of that but i didn't learn until later that he actually wasn't even aware of what saint michael was or who and in fact later on in the chapter about him he sees a video of saint michael the archangel and recognizes what i was trying to tell him and that he actually saw this this being and um it of course it was already a weird event for him because he thought it was real but then it became a lot weirder for him um and he also has had experiences with what we would call the grays and he had the similar response that carrie moles had he wants to um, fight back. He wants to protect himself. And so um, so that's the gray man. The gray man has these experiences. And what I found was that when people would tell me their UFO experiences, which has happened a lot now since I wrote American Cosmic, um, they would not only tell me about the actual objective experience of seeing the UFO or 
you know, of it in the vicinity, they would also tell me a lot of events that were, you know, like what you would call either uh, people would call them religious events. They would either see things that they thought were angels or see things that they thought were demons. They would have paranormal um, kinds of poltergeist things around them and uh, life would be pretty weird for them. And so I wanted to convey this too, because I think that a lot, well, you know, for a fact that, you know, there are a lot of people within the field that do this study that would prefer not to look at this. Uh, but as a per person who's trained to study religions, I'm going to see it right away. So this is, uh, this is the gray man in the book. This is his experience. Now, he, he came to you in part, He's not. He's involved in on the inside in this whole affair, as I recall. In other he words, has, yeah, he's a um, he has a similar position. He's a material scientist, right? And so, therefore, and I'm reminded. I was reminded. I was reading of something I once said to you. When you look at the materials, they're looking back at you. That's right. That is. Very true, because they, you know, you hold something in your hand and you think it's as well, it's an unusual piece of metal. It sure is. And it's more unusual <laughs> than you <may> think. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, so he, how did he come into your life? Okay, so um, directly, in fact, it was before American Cosmic was published, it was I believe in press, um, there were many scientists very much like those in American Cosmic, like Gary, who's now out as Gary Nolan, yeah. um, and it was James in my book, um, who coalesced, I guess you could say, reached out to me, and um, and they were all involved in the study. Um, now that a lot of the hearings are happening in Congress around this topic. When I look back at what I was doing, I was actually stumbled, of course, upon a crash retrieval situation and um, uh, unwittingly, frankly. And all of the people who were involved in those kinds of endeavors knew who I was. And part of the reason why Whitley, they were interested in me, because a lot of people are like, well, you're not a scientist. Why would they be interested in your research? Well, what I figured out was that they were interested precisely for the reasons that I wrote Encounters. Because apparently when you do interface with the things that appear to be nuts and bolts, um, it it's weirder than we think. And a lot of religious type spiritual events happen yes. to people so this is what they were interested in and i and here i had a direct line to looking at these events in history and the historical record through the vatican and whatnot so i attracted a lot so he was one of the people that approached me about doing research that would then go back to a specific um i wouldn't call it a government agency right <laughs> specific programs that study these things and by yeah. the way i did i just did not know this at the time right i understand uh, so it, let's get back to what he experienced he suddenly finds himself face to face with an entity which you later identify as the archangel michael yes. uh, there is then a battle he is given a sword 
and mm-hmm. he must do battle with a dark evil entity on mm-hmm. apparently on in concert with or on behalf of the manifestation of good the archangel what's what's going on there and 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 what's so interesting is that this all is happening in the context of a life that is becoming engaged with the re- research into the materials yes so i would say that this he appears to have been an experiencer from uh, a young man right but he just didn't recognize it he had and ufo experiences yes he sure did um identifiable ones that are really well known and well studied in um australia yes and so um so these these you know so what i'm doing here is i can't exactly explain it all to t- you know of course i can't it's a little bit like american cosmic where i go into it and then years later i'm like okay you know we have a lot more data to explain what that ha- what happened to me then so with encounters it's a little bit the same in that i had this incredible amount of data about ex- religious spiritual experiences that people were having um along with their ufo uh research or their ufo sightings and so grayman was like i said the one of the best examples of this situation and so what is he what's going on here so um i think that he well first off while he was a a young man although his family is not religious he actually converted to christianity so he became very religious and when he had this experience of saint michael what look we'll just call saint michael it fits (laughs) right um he is engaged in learning how to deal with what we would call evil these things that are coming at him appear to be malign right Uh, bad things and he's being taught to dispatch them basically and so um and th- it's at this point where, you know, he he's working in co- the capacity of doing the research that, say, Gary and you know Tyler are engaged in. Um, that he's recognizing on many levels that it's uh, it's a very it's a much stranger. He had the intuition that it had to do with um spiritual types of basically spiritual warfare is what he how he the terms that he used and another person in the book jose uses the same term for it spiritual warfare so a lot of the a lot of the people believe that they're engaged in some type of spiritual warfare and that and he absolutely believes that well that is that has been true uh since uh the beginning uh when um uh the the uh when air material started in 1947 it was at the same time uh general twining who was the first commanding officer at air material had developed a friendship with of all people padre pio when he was uh, commanding the 15th air force in italy during world war ii and converted to catholicism and became very religious uh, and su- subsequently, I don't think there's been a single 
officer in command at Air Materiel who has not been, uh, uh, in one way or another, not necessarily Catholic, but a committed person, a, a religiously committed person. And it makes me wonder because I thought to myself as I was reading about Tyler D, I mean, I'm sorry, about uh, the gray man and the Archangel Michael, what if this was the first century AD? It would be a different God. We, he would have had a different, probably I would think the closest I could come just off the top of my head was Apollo, that it would be Apollo. Yes, there is actually, um, I think, uh, I used to know the name of that God who was, had a sword and looked and was shiny and looked exactly like what we now call St. Michael the Archangel. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember, but, and Apollo actually, this is even pre-Apollo, believe it or not. It, so, yeah, it's yeah, a very so old, is, yeah. mm -hmm. a very old, and, um, the, but what are we dealing with when we deal with these manifestations? Because I, I, I have a feeling what is happening is within us in some way, in, and maybe outside of us too, I wouldn't deny that, but that, that what he was doing was making a decision as to the direction he wanted to go in. And he wanted to go in the direction of defending us and himself in some way against something that seems dangerous and aggressive. And yet when I was in that situation with that woman who had obviously found herself in the dark side, I felt such compassion for her and such a desire. I begged God afterwards to draw them out and to end hell, to draw them all out. And I didn't care why she was there. I couldn't care less, just that she was suffering. So what is evil then? We'll go a little deeper. We're talking to Dr. Diana Walsh-Pasulka about her new book, Encounters, Experiences with Non-Human Intelligences. You can engage with her at dwpasulka.com or uh, at uh, Diana. What, what's the Instagram address again? I always said dwpasulka. Okay. All right. So either way you can, and also I'm, I meant to mention this earlier, Diana gives courses and they are incredibly cool. I've taken one or two of them. And I have to tell you, you can go on her website and find out more. Do not miss these courses. You will never have an experience like going in a course with Diana. It's a remarkable, I mean, you can see what we're going into today. What a remarkable human being she is and a, a marvelous teacher as well. So, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, that um, that do engage with her if you can. And now let's go on about this whole issue of good and evil, because I know from my own experience with people in the in this field who are working on the inside that it's very much divided between good and evil. They believe that they are dealing with an evil presence in these entities that we think of as the greys. Uh, 
and they act accordingly. Now, you have, I think, a much more subtle and nuanced approach, and perhaps it's that approach that needs to to bleed into the world of uh, of the people who are in in many cases dealing with this quite directly. So, what do you think of it? Well, really, I have to admit that I have um, my my perception of what we're dealing with has changed a lot. And whereas when I first started the study of this in 2013, I was basically studying what I and still believe is a rising new form of religion, right? A new form of, of religion. Yeah. Um, we, we do have religions about UFOs, but this would be a, like a decentralized form of religion. Um, and once I begin to understand that there was a there there, right? There was something actually real going on here. Um, I became quite perplexed. And um, then I met a lot more people who were involved in the study of it. So, and now that I have had a lot of engagement, I could, you know, I would say with people who do this, this study, I definitely see why there is such a polarized environment between people who think it's good on some level and people who think we should not deal with this at all. We should not touch this. This is pure evil. Okay. And there's very rarely people that are in between um, or, you know, a little bit of each or whatnot. Um, I think it's safe to say that if you look at the historical record and you also look at say the work of say Gary Nolan, um, you're going to see that and even within the kinds of, of feedback we get, Whitley, when we get people sending us letters and information about their own experiences, you know, I've had people tell me that they had experiences as children. Now these people might be in their 60s or 70s and they write to me and say, and I started, I stopped looking into it when I recognized that pilots were being killed through their interfaces with it. And, you know, I mean, these are people that are saying things that we need to pay attention to. And I know that people in my field would rather look the other way with respect to that and would rather say, you know, this is all subjective experiences. But I think part of what we're saying, seeing right now um, is a recognition that, that it is um, a force that isn't necessarily, you know, not that, as Gary Nolan says it sometimes, maybe it's collateral damage what people experience with their interface with it. Um, that means that it's not intentionally done, but the effect of it could be bad. You know, it could, you know, with um, burns and things like that. Uh, John Mack, of course, at the end of, you know, whereas he was moving in the direction that this would be like a shamanic experience, um, an experience in which we go through trials and tribulations, but we transform and become better people. Um, he was looking at it from that perspective. Um, I'm of the opinion these days that, um, well, it's made me more, more religious. <laughs> I was already fairly religious, but this has definitely uh, tipped me over the edge. Yeah, I think it. I think I can see that very clearly. I, in in my own life, uh, I'm, I try to be as objective about it as possible because I have, as you know. Uh, 
experience the very worst of it. Yeah. I, I mean, you can't get experiences worse than than Ann and I have had. And I'm not going to go into them now uh, because everyone, I'm just referring, of course, to the taking of sexual material from me and the removal of a, of a fetus from Anne, which both happened. And uh, I think this removal of the fetus happened where it's not cl as clear as the first thing, but these are, these are uh, the sort of things that are done. We do all the time to animals and we don't do them because we're evil. We do them for basically for scientific reasons or in the case of many animals, we simply harvest them for their flesh routinely. And we're not, we don't consider ourselves evil for doing this. But I, if the cattle could ever figure out why they're being fed, they might think of us as being incredibly sinister and evil. Uh, and... Uh, uh, when Charles Fort referred to this as a barnyard, he was he was thinking about something that wasn't evil, but so much as needy. And I think that we're dealing perhaps with something that is that needs us, which would explain why they're so interested in things like we had Dr. Michael Sala on the show recently. So things like not uh, us not having nuclear war and not having environmental catastrophes. It's not because they're nice guys. It's because we're food. Now I'm I'm going I'm to leave you sitting <laughs> on that cliff edge and see what happens. It reminds me of your, your one of your first books, and it was this your first book that you wrote called The Wolfen. Yeah, the wolfen. Yeah. Yeah, the wolfen. We're food. Yeah. Well, that's a theme in yeah. my a lot of my early books. It's a theme in the next one, the hunger, because these are coming from deep within me. Because remember, I was you know I when I was a kid, I was taken out to the country house by my father at the age of eleven, and just sent into the back pasture when this thing would land there. I wasn't. No one went with me. I had to go by myself, and uh, so. You know, I'm familiar with this thing, and it's very provocative. And are we dealing with evil, or are we dealing with hunger? That's a really good question. That's a, um, I mean, let's, this is, I'd be pragmatic about it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, if, if in fact something is aggressive to us, we should protect ourselves whether they're hungry or whether they're evil. And by the way, we are evil. I mean, when we, when you say that, you know, the way we treat animals and such, I agree with you, that's, that's hunger, that's not evil. But I mean, we do have human trafficking and that is absolutely evil. It's so absolutely human, evil. Yeah, so human beings, you know, are evil. We do evil things, not all of us. Most of us are not evil, but we certainly have enough people to ruin the party for a lot of others of us. And I think that, you know, so evil does exist. Oh yeah. Well, you know, in uh, a new world, I, I, I go into some cases that occurred in Brooklyn some years ago now, and they may still occur. I don't know of people who were uh, 
who were killed by these entities. And mm -hmm. I tell exactly why they were killed and what was done uh, precisely. Uh, and and uh, the, 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 this is, was leaked by an, a coroner who was working with the FBI. And so, and these people were being harvested. Their souls were being harvested. Now, that can't be good. I'm not in favor. No, that sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah, it sounds. <laughs> I think that, so when a lot of people ask about, and I do get asked about this, about the people who are preventing UFO research because they're hardcore Christians or, you know, they believe that these are demonic. Um, well, you know, their experiences have shown them that, you know, perhaps these are not demonic. Perhaps these are just we don't want them to do the things that they're doing. So, you know, yes. so think of the reasons why people would have, you know, this type of belief system. And it would be because of, and you, by the way, you're not the first person to tell me that, you know, there's a lot of, I've met now a lot of people who are forensic detectives and work with coroners, you know, to, to like as first responders to do this kind of thing. And it's a, it's a fairly grim, you know, it, it's a fairly grim picture. It is a very grim picture indeed. And folks, I'm going to just uh, say just briefly to assuage your curiosity or to inform you, a lot of you probably haven't read A New World and uh, you're going to read Encounters though. I'm, I'm coming to your house and telling and bringing a book. <laughs> In any case, uh, and charging for my my uh, car fare as well. So in any case, what happened in this case was uh, they found that she was aware of 17 cases of all homeless people who had been uh, mutilated and then drowned and then taken back, the dead bodies taken back and put approximately where they had originally been found the living people had been found. It was always homeless people and people with no, no known associations of any kind. But some, I, in, in analyzing the report, I could see that there was a specific thing that was being done, that the spine was being opened up right back here in a certain place, which when I've been taken out of my body by the visitors, the ones I think are as, 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 as on our side, they will touch that area with a little electri electrical charge and it, you can feel it open up something down your spine and then your second body comes right out. Your soul comes right out of your body. And then you can engage in whatever, in my case, task they want me to do. And you know about one of those tasks that involved Tyler D. Um, and, uh, uh, but these souls were taken. And I think that I, I, I'm afraid I can't even theorize about why they want them, but they did want them and they left these bodies behind. And he, here's the thing. If they drowned them, why not just leave the bodies underwater? Why did they take them back? And it gets me to this point. Is this, are we dealing something with something that's entirely sane at any level, even on the most objective level, even in, in its own lights? Because that's not a sane process. 
It's not a sane way of doing it. Yeah, that sounds like terror. I mean, it sounds yeah. like a, a terror tactic for sure. Exactly. Of course, it was a terror tactic. And where are we going, Diana? Because I, when I read your book, I thought to myself, this is a, this is a book about a, a deep, profound attempt to engage with something that we maybe shouldn't even touch. Maybe shouldn't even touch. Uh, yeah, I think we're not going to so. get. We're not going <laughs> to leave it behind. I mean, that it's already out. A, a redditor uh, published a thing about there being bodies that that have been studied and so forth. So I mean, that's all out there. Uh, we're engaged with this. And well. I, really, I do. Also in the book, what I do propose is that um, we've been engaged with it and yeah, that, you exactly. know, there are. So, you know, I begin the book with a quote by Suzanne Kite, who's Lakota, and she basically says, believe it or not, you know, it's it's been here the whole time. You know, it's always right. been here. Right. There's no disclosure that needs to happen for lots of different types of communities. And so what I'm suggesting, I'm not necessarily suggesting that, but I'm proposing through interviewing people who talk about it, that one that we lose a lot when we get rid of, a, we throw the baby out with the bathwater with religion, okay? Because many of the world's traditions, either the religious traditions or many indigenous cultures have built in ways and infrastructure for dealing with these kinds of experiences. And so Gray Man goes right to the infrastructure of his religion in order to deal with that. And so does Jose in, in the chapters that focus on, on him. Yes. And so so right here, you know what we're you know we're just trying to deal with it within a scientific framework but our science is sorely lacking you know we don't have the ability to deal with with really what it is which is why a lot of the scientists then showed up in my sphere and asked me questions about it as as shocking as it was to me at the time now this is my response well if you really want to know this is how people have always dealt with it so we don't need to Whitley I don't think we need to like reinvent the wheel I think we already have at our disposal those kinds of things that that can help, but we just have to practice them. And I Libby, think that's where we when we've you lost say practice it. them. What 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 do you mean? All of us have traditions that our families, our ancestors had been engaged in. You know the religious traditions. I call them the protocols. And if we practice those, I mean, you do those protocols of your sensing protocols and you know those kinds of things so in a sense you you to me i could be entirely wrong and been reading you incorrectly but you you're utilizing a, a protocol or a series of protocols that help you deal with this on a daily basis and Absolutely. you've taught them yeah you've created a community 
in order to help people deal with it. Um, you've dealt, so you're doing exactly what I think people of back in the day, you know, of old time, right? Would would they developed these protocols and these abilities to deal with these things? And I think that my community you know, would be the new Gnostics, essentially. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. And I do talk about Gnosticism, you the do. lost yeah. art of Gnosticism. In fact, uh, let's 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 unpack that a little bit now that we've come here. And I had this interview all planned, and it's, it's gone completely down other other roads, which is always great. So uh, tell us a little bit about your vision of understanding of what Gnosticism is and where we are with it now. It's very sure. interesting material in the book. So a lot of the people who have been able to uh, navigate the UFO landscape, which you and I know is treacherous, okay? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, would be people like Alan Hynek and Jacques Vallée and you, of course. But but what does was Jacques, what does he do? Well, he doesn't actually do it overtly by talking about it. He does it by practicing it. So I I describe a visit to his apartment in um, San Francisco, and I describe his shelves of books about angels and books about fallen angels, right? And his study, as well as his practice of Rosicrucianism, all right? Because yes. what I'm trying to explain to people is that Jacques is a practitioner, and he's a practitioner of this tradition, and he doesn't go to a temple or a Rosicrucian temple or anything like that, but he engages in the complete study of this realm and these beings and he always has okay and so what i'm saying is that there are and then gray man is a practitioner uh let's also talk about dr whiteley ia okay so you, yes, you let's and i go on to dr her. whiteley now because it's a perfect time to do that and she's an amazing person so in my discussions now knowing her for years of um what she does she is um she's the head of the Mollard um, Aeronautics Medicine at University College in London. So she's got a, a pretty cool job where she's basically uh, etched out a space psychology program, space psychologist. And she yeah. helps train astronauts to go into extreme environments and survive in them. Um, and she's also working, people always say this, and on the side, I do this work in UAP research. They always call it on the side. You know, I do this as a hobby. <laughs> Um, but what she's doing is oh, quite miraculous. I know, you do. So what she's doing is very interesting and miraculous. And this is the reason why I opened the book with her, because it's absolutely hopeful. And basically what she's doing now, she was brought up um, in a country that was communist. So she had no access to any religious tradition. But she found her way into a Gnosticism. And then for your viewers who don't, who you know what is gnosticism basically it's the greek word for knowledge but it's a type of knowledge of direct knowledge of something sacred the direct knowledge of god it's like mysticism that's what gnosticism is um the way i explain it to my students is you have a chocolate bar how would you like to know about this chocolate bar do you want to read the ingredients that's one form of knowledge of it or you could just eat it that's the gnostic form of knowledge you're going to eat the chocolate bar get the taste of it, know what it, it tastes like, okay? So that's Gnosticism. So what she's doing is she's developing an, uh, a way for children, basically, to 
be in contact with our earth because, you know, we're pretty out of contact with it. Us in the, you know, us Westerners who have been, you know, raised to go to college and, you know, we've been trained out of a, 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 the plug-in to this, what uh, tell your day shirt on called this, the newosphere, the Southern network of knowledge and um, beauty and the things that we're, you know, we're earthlings, we're born to be, you know, in touch with. And so she's doing this through scientific uh, technologies and and just by basically uh, hammering it out from her her just, you know, God-given brilliance. And what she's doing is she's she's recreating, um, a, I wouldn't call it a religion, I would call it a way to plug into knowledge that has been lost. Yes. That's I have been a student of Gnosticism for many years, uh, and uh, the reason is the same because there is a way to connect directly with the great presence. I'm also in the Guji Foundation for the same reason that you it's a, it teaches ways of waking up uh, to the real world. And you have, you must not uh, travel down this path that we're talking about, the UAP uh, close encounter contact path without doing this. It's just, you, you can't because you'll be, you'll, you'll, you'll get lost. Um, which gets me to another question. Uh, oh, before we go on, Folks, I, Aya Whittley is going to be on this show, and I'm hoping that Diana and Aya and I will all be together on the show. Uh, Aya has done some wonderful interviews. Uh, the, the UFO Rabbit Hole, which is one of my favorites shows, and uh, she's been on that. And so just go to Google and Google I-Y-A, Aya Whittley, W-H-I-T-E-L-E-Y. We missed each other by one, one E. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> at Aya Whittley, and you'll see her 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 interview and her uh, uh, a place in, in 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 her in her school, and she's a terribly important player in all of this at a deep level because she's going to take it. To, she's going to take our lev our ability to communicate with and and to have a supple effective relationship with this presence to a new level i'm, mm -hmm. I'm she's an absolute genius uh, i uh, really the classic example of a genius of the first order absolutely yeah and and the first part of this book by the way is about aya's work and it's absolutely about encounters fascinating one thing about diana you can count on she goes where the most important things are and finds out what's going on there. It's just remarkable. You have a real skill at that, Diana. I'm very impressed Thanks. with it. Thank you. Okay. So um, free Dreamlanders, you have to leave us now. We have to say goodbye to you. And um, But you've had enough. And if you don't have had enough, have not had enough, well, subscribe to the show and we can, we can go on. We're talking to Dr. Diana Walsh-Pasilka. Her website is dwpasilka.com. Her new book, Encounters, Explorations with UFOs, Dreams, Angels, AI, and Other Dimensions. And that's only scratching the surface. <laughs> it's brilliant. And do get it and absorb it. Because if we're going down this road successfully, 
And that does not mean playing footsie with the grays, please. Uh, we're going to do it because of people like Diana and Aya and people, other people along who, who are taking us where we need to go. Diana, now it's just us and the subscribers, and Diana will be in the subscriber video section uh, on uh, December the 2nd at 10 a.m. Pacific and answer your questions, and you'll find, uh, uh, you'll find her to be as expert at that as she is in her own classroom. And if you want to find out more about Diana's classroom, go to her website and uh, explore her courses. They're very worthwhile. As you can obviously see, she's brilliant at teaching. Um, okay, now let's let's go on down the road a little bit into, and I want to to explore one of the things that has happened in the UFO world is that there are a lot of people out there who want to believe this is all sweetness and light, and there are people hucksters who are exploiting them and saying, you're right, it is all sweetness and light. And the greys are great. They're wonderful. I can think of a number of people who fill auditoriums with this, this stuff. But if you and I go out, we're not going to fill the auditorium because we're, talking, we're, talking, we're telling a much more complex truth. What, what do you say to that when someone says, well, and this, you know, if this ever bursts out, and I know a lot of people on the inside have the great fear that the greys will suddenly just be walking down the street all over the world. And, you know, without warning, in other words, it, it'll come to us unexpectedly. What do we do in a context, in a context when people want this to be something wonderful and they're pushing all of the efforts to make sense of it aside? Yeah, that seems like a, um, that would be something that I don't think we have any control over, Willie. So um, a lot of what happened to me through the aftermath of American Cosmic uh, and trying to figure out, you know, what was happening, I went back to the philosophical traditions and also the religious traditions. So I re-examined the allegory of the, the cave in Plato's Republic and in fact looked at Plato's Republic again. And the question Plato asks in that book is, can we have a just society? So he asks, you know, what, what form must society take for there to be justice, right? Um, and then I also looked at um, Jesus again, right? And I think you did that too. So uh, it seems to be yes. something people do once they have these experiences. So I looked at Jesus again and I saw, I saw a lot more in the gospels that, you know, and I've been studying this my whole life. <laughs> so you think I know already what was in there, but I saw it renewed for me. And what I saw was really, it had correlations to the Republic. Of course, the Republic is written, you know, 450 years before Jesus is even born. Okay. So the Greeks, you know, at least the, the school of Athens is trying to figure out, you know, um, these questions of good and evil, just like, you know, the questions that you asked me in the first segment of this interview about good and evil. And so this is what I learned. I read the allegory of the cave a few times over. 
again, you know, uh, because I've read it now how many times I've taught it. Okay. And what struck me this time was that the puppet masters, so the, the people who actually tie, you know, here's a cave and human beings, this is what, what Socrates is telling Glocon, who is his conversation partner about what it's like, what life is like for humans. And he says, it's like a cave. And he, we're all like facing the wall of the cave and we're tied up and somebody's tied us up and they've lit a fire in back of us and they've taken their hands and they've created shadows on the wall. And we can only see these shadows and this is what reality looks like to us and we believe it. And then one person gets away and they go outside and they see the sun and they realize that what we see, what our reality is, is completely fabricated and it's not real. And then the people, this person goes back into the cave and tells the other people and the people say, you're crazy, you know, go away. We don't want to hear anything that you have to say. Okay, well, uh, you know, Whitley, you and I are, are these people that are like got free, went out and we're like, oh, we've got to tell people what's going on. So we go back in and nobody believes us. In fact, they think we're crazy. Okay, well, I started to reconsider this whole thing and I thought, wait a minute, what about these puppet masters? Nobody, when, when I was taught about, you know, the allegory in philosophy class at college, they really, no one ever talked about the puppet masters. Like these, these people, like, who are they? They're tying us up. You know, they're, they're not good. They're, you know, they're bad. And so I started to ask friends of mine who are, you know, educated. And I said, what do you think about the puppet masters in the allegory? And a lot of them said, that's just a trope. That's just, you know, a rhetorical figure of speech. He didn't actually mean that there are these puppet masters. And I said, well, he didn't actually mean that we live in a cave either. But, there, you know, every single thing in there is significant. And so what I began to understand was that Plato was saying that there's no, we, we don't have a just society. We're never going to have a form of a just society. But this is how, what we can do about it. We can engage in the dialectic. And the dialectic is basically, once you start to look at what it is, it's the creation of a community of people based on a mystical relationship that they have with one another, which is a, a form of dialectic, conversation, but conversation about the most important things of life, which, by the way, I must say that you do. So you've kind of done this, right? So you've created a, a way to live within the society. You have a a group of people um, that you've that you engage with. And so this is what he said. And I looked back and I looked and then I said, I now have to take this information that I gleaned and I have to go back and look at Jesus. So I went back and I looked at the gospels and I recognized that he was saying the same thing. He's saying that, you know, who owns the world, who runs the world, but Satan, he's calling it the adversary. The adversary runs the world. And we're engaged in talking about the good, the things of goodness, God, right? And that, you know, we could, we have an obligation to tell people about what he calls sin, which is, you know, just seeing the, the shadows on the wall and not the reality. But once that obligation is done, our obligation is done. We don't have to go back and like play, you know, what Plato, Plato also said we had an obligation to tell them. But when we go back, um, and they don't listen to us. Jesus said, just take off your shoes and, you know, dust off the, the dust and move on. Move to where you can find community. So um, so this is what 
this is what um this happened to me through the writing of encounters and i actually did write about it in encounters i wrote about it with the uh reference to patty who you know her chapter yes. right patty Teresi, the a, a brilliant philosopher by the way uh, who is also on uh, uh, on the faculty at uh, at uh, University of at, at Diana's University? Uh, I haven't talked to her in too long a time. Um, so we we are in a situation where those of us who are trying to make this work have realized many of us, not all, because some of them are very secular. Like I, I don't think it, Gary Nolan buys into this at all. I, I'm not sure, although he's he's aware of the fact that some of the people in the Defense Department who are also confused about it in a different way think of me as a kind of a typhoid Mary for the Greys. They don't understand what I'm doing at all. Um, and, and but it, it, we have a situation where finding our way in this successfully means basically having a strong soul and you know if you look at the traditions in the world about that how to do you find a strong soul you have to ask yourself what is the escape from plato's cave and who are the puppet masters and how do we find our way out of this place that gi gurdjieff calls sleep how do we wake up? Because when we wake up, we also free ourselves necessarily from the bondage of sleep, of, of the puppet masters. So fool around with those ideas. And we'd be fascinated with your response. Tell us again, who do you think the puppet masters are? I met some of them. <laughs> so I think there are, there are different types of puppet masters. So there could be the puppet masters that you engage with who seem to be the non-human ones. And then there are definitely human puppet masters. And these are people who create the, you know, I mean, social media is now used as a form of misinformation and for various different you know right. you know information gathering things like that but also you know it's it's the media has it's it's obviously what plato's referencing here um so you know i've i've seen and was in contact with people and that's what chapter eight is about it's called the children of the invisibles yes. and it it was this very weird time for me that you witness, witnessed me go through because I pretty much cut off my, uh, I cut off communication with with almost everyone we knew. And I went I remember into, well, yeah, what you yeah, went through. It was a dark yeah, night of the soul. It was. And so um, I met people who basically said, why would you want to tell people the truth about things? The people don't actually care. And it's better just to stay out of it and live a better life. You are a solitary person. You don't enjoy this work. You know, they were very convincing to tell you the truth. And um, and they also were in 
they were interesting in the way in the lives that they led also. So they led lives of um, I can only describe as like the people I met at the Vatican were similar in the sense that uh, I met Peter Gumpel, who um, had been a papal advisor as a Jesuit, lived at the Vatican, and he was never on the Internet. He didn't have a cell phone. Um, he didn't watch the news. Uh, he, he led an incredibly solitary life. Um, he would only write letters, okay, like, like snail mail letters, no email, nothing like that, okay? And if you wanted to talk to him, you actually had to call a phone in a place in the Vatican where he was at. And if he happened to, you know, be there, then you would get a person who would say, I'll get him for you, right? Uh, but he wouldn't have access on his own. So these people kind of lived like that. But their jobs were not like his. Their jobs were basically to pr to basically uh, manage the message. All right, manage the message of of UFOs and manage the message, and they did this in lots of different ways. And so I was able to see, kind of like get uh, get a view into this. And strangely enough, Whitley, and this is as you know, this is how this kind of stuff works. Strangely enough. I recognized that my friend Patty, who I had known for so many years, 21 years, pre-UFO and post-UFO, and I recognized that her own father was part of what I call this, this group of invisibles, but she didn't know it. And the only reason I knew it was because I met these kinds of people. And so I was able to recognize, I saw how their own children lived and I met their children. And I recognized that Patty had grown up exactly like this. And that when I, before I had even done UFOs or even thought of UFOs, Patty and I would take our kids out to like the strawberry patch or something like that. And I'd take pictures and send them to her. And she'd thank me and said, oh yeah, I have no pictures from when I was a child. And I was like, what, no pictures? And occasionally she'd say some things like that. And the more she told me, the more and the more I got into this, the more I recognized that she was indeed a child. She had a childhood where her father was engaged in one of these programs. And so it took a long time for me to actually ask her if she if I could interview her because I wanted to protect her. Um, and she's a good friend of mine. And she has, you know, I her kids are like my kids. Right. And so. Um, I finally asked her, and it was at the end of Encounters, and I wanted to write about the Invisibles and share that information, but I just didn't know how. And I thought, I think if, if you know, I trust Patty and she trusts me, and if I tell her story, which is, you know, her, you know, her, this is 40 years ago that this, you know, she, where she grew up like this. So I felt like enough time, you know, it wasn't good for me to tell the stories of the kids of the invisibles now but it's certainly right. okay for me to tell you know tell it from from way back and right. it gives an indication of the kinds of lives that these kids grow up within i believe you even had a life like this I so did, yeah. I, yeah so i recognized a lot about the children uh, you know who grew up in these environments whose whose parents were in some or you know uncles were somehow involved with Wrights Patterson or you know things like that and these aren't normal this isn't this isn't normal life this isn't a, a normal life so I was able to tell that story within this idea of the allegory of the cave the uh, uh, 
that still goes on, by the way. There are schools for children to this day uh, that that are that these that are like what I was in, and um, so so it, 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 and I wonder always, you know, in my own case about my father, who never spoke a word about this in our entire life with him, but he was very closed mouthed anyway. I don't, and and there are some people involved who don't know what they're doing. In other words, they do it without knowing it and uh, or, or have no memory of it. And I'm wondering if Patty's father, and that, that came up in my mind during the reading of the book, uh, might have been not completely aware of what he did. And it also made me think of, um, of uh, the gray man and how aware he was and... Uh, What's his name? The I interviewed him, and in, you talk about him in the show, in the in the book. Uh, uh, the the young fellow who was on the Roosevelt. Uh, oh, Robert, Matthew Roberts. Matthew Roberts. Yeah, Matthew Roberts. Yeah. And you know the discussion of why Matthew Roberts and not other people on the Roosevelt. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know when I talked that, about that with him, I, it was very clear he was interested, and he therefore remembered. But what about people who are working like as automatons in this? And there are a lot of them. What about that? Does I didn't get the impression that there's nothing in the book that tells me that Patty's dad actually knew what he was doing. Or am I, I don't know if he did. I just know that they they were under an extreme constraint of secrecy. I mean, yeah. like that was not normal. And Patty did not know that it wasn't until she grew up and she had friends. And she would say things and they, the friends would say, what? Like me, right? Yeah. She things that I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? And she's, she began to figure out that her childhood was completely weird in that respect and had such constraints around it. And it all had to do with being a part of this space program. And, um, and I would, um, she was, you know, recruited by the NSA. I mean, there were so many things about Patty that were just not normal for being a philosophy professor. And, and uh, even these things that, you know, um, I call the uh, extra cognitive events, uh, Tyson Yunkaporta coined that term um, for these coincidences and almost like precognitions and things like that. I was actually, this was a very long time ago, and I was going to go to California, as, as you know, and many people do. I do fly, but I don't like it. And yeah. I especially when, when I was, um, I had, my kids were really young. I didn't really want to be a, away from them. Uh, and I had to fly out to California to see my mother. She was, she was unwell and I had to see her. So, um, so instead of flying, I decided to take a train. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but back then I, it was really bad. So I, uh, I told Patty and Patty just said, don't go on this date. And she just said it just out of the blue. And I said, okay. <laughs> and I didn't. Well, the train crashed on that date. Oh my God. Yeah. So, you know, those kinds of things would happen. That's with my Patty. impression of Patty was, you know, I've got to get now that I've got a kind of hook here i'm gonna get patty on the show I, if she wants to do it i'd love to have her on the show we did have her on the show she's so interesting 
she's terribly interesting and and is and a brilliant philosopher but now i've got to weigh in with what you wrote because i was never sure the degree to which she wanted to talk about that now i yeah, can yeah it's it's hard i mean it's hard to say if she will i i know that um she said that she felt okay talking about it because it's been so long and her her yeah. father's you know um but but yeah so she also not only did she have these experiences but she also had a lot of religious experiences that happened to her that made her she was a she was an atheist when i met her and she became a catholic like so many people who are in this experience and especially yeah. on the inside they mm -hmm. all end up in a in 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 one religious tradition or another for the reasons we were discussing and for the reasons that i i am and you you're a catholic i'm I'm not exactly a Catholic, but I, I'm certainly open to the, 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 the many of the moral traditions of the church. And you have to, you have to take a moral stand and you must. There's make, no neutrality. Yeah, there's no, no there's no position. neutrality. You must take a moral stand. And, and there are people among the greys that are definitely not on the dark side. I mean, I met some of them. Of course, being what they are and the way they are, that could be simply a, another another trick. You just never you're never sure with them, which is one of the interesting things about being having them in your life. You're never absolutely sure where you stand, and then you think to yourself, "Are they sure about where they stand? Am I sure about where I stand as a human being and as a soul?" And the answer is no. In every case, we're not sure. They're not purely evil but they want to they want things from us that we can't give basically they want our souls we can't give them what an interesting thing to be fighting this on the level that many of the people in the on the behind the scenes are fighting so i you know i i've i, I was very divided in my book them as about this war and is there is a war there's been a war for a long time and we're fighting in it is it a good idea or are we creating somehow the evil by fighting them and if we didn't fight them would they turn out to not be evil what do you think i think that's a great question and my position right now is that i'm just as you talk about our soul you know the soul is the you know the state of our soul you started this interview by relating a dream that you had about a woman in hell basically yeah, yeah. okay and um yesterday a very um very well known and very fascinating catholic author sent me a a story that he had been told about a person's little brother who um reached out to him through dreams and through the extended family through dreams about being in a place that seemed like hell uh, but it was purgatory okay and this was a catholic family that then engaged in prayers and things like this so in before the getting into american cosmic i you know i was a religious person as you know catholic practicing would i wouldn't say i was a great person who is but i was a practicing you know i would go to church i'd often go to church a couple times a week all right and i'd take my kids with me um 
However, the depth of my religiosity completely shifted once I started, once American Cosmic was out there and I met more people and I got into the study and the interviews for encounters. And now I believe that it's an urgent matter. This state of our moral, our moral state is basically an urgent matter for every one of us. We, yeah, we're trapped if we don't address our, our, if we do not look at ourselves for what we are, then somebody else is going to, and they're going to take advantage of us in some dreadful ways. And on that cheerful note, <laughs> we come to the <laughs> end of the time together. Do not miss tomorrow, folks. Uh, the uh, chance to ask Diana questions is very, very precious. And I'm going to, bef the last thing I'm going to ask you is a question I know will come up tomorrow. And I, I, I think it's it, we, we need to get past it right now. What in the world is the cow doing on the couch in the picture behind you? <laughs> the cow is reclining. Okay, we're going to leave it there, folks. That's it. <laughs> we're going to leave it there. Wonderful time with you, Diana. And a Thank perfect you. zen ending to this extremely complex <laughs> and, and deep discussion. Um, the uh, Diana's book is Encounters. Get it from your bookstore, from Amazon, for Barnes & Noble, wherever you get books. Get it. And is it in an audiobook form as well? In fact, I did the audiobook. You did the audiobook. So even better. Yeah. I mean, that wonderful voice can be inside your mind and 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 hard. Uh, I, I I love audiobooks, and I I think you have a marvelous voice, so it should be a great audiobook as well. dwpasulka.com, and you can also find her on Instagram. Engage with this extraordinary human being who is out here at the edge and dancing on it with great skill. Thank you for being with us, Diana. Thank you so much, Whitley. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.